I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Orange Prize winning author Madeline Miller on her latest novel, Circe. Madeleine Miller is the author of The Song of Achilles, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2012, was an instant New York Times bestseller, was shortlisted for the Stonewall Writer of the Year 2012, and was translated into 25 languages. Madeleine lives in Pennsylvania, where she's talking to me from now, and her latest novel is Circe, which we're going to talk about today. Madeleine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So can you describe Circe, the novel, for us? Sure. Um... For a long time, uh, I was saying that it was a retelling of the life of Circe, but um, the truth is that there aren't very many myths about Circe, so I ended up making up quite a lot. So calling it a retelling is not exactly accurate. (laughs) Um, It's more like a reimagining or a reinvention of the life of the sorceress Circe, who first appears in Homer's Odyssey, um, where she turns Odysseus's men to pigs. And she was a very um, exciting figure in the ancient world, and she kind of became a watchword for, you know, this is what happens when women get power. They turn men into pigs. But her character in Homer is actually more complex than just the straight-up villain. We often remember her as kind of, you know, the black widow spider luring men in so she can turn them into beasts. But in Homer, she's also incredibly helpful to Odysseus. She ends up allowing him and his men to stay on her island for a year. She helps them heal. She and Odysseus are lovers. And then when it's time for them to go, she sends them on her way, on their way with really wonderful advice. So part of what I wanted to do was, first of all, to kind of construct a full story using the scattered myths that were out there. And I wanted it to be her story. So in the Odyssey, Circe is just a cameo. She's there for kind of two plus books while Odysseus stops off at her island and then he sails off and that's the end. So I kind of wanted to flip that and I wanted the whole story to be Circe's epic and to have Odysseus be the cameo. So I made him appear for two plus chapters so that, you know, turnabout is fair play. And I wanted it to be all from her perspective, kind of instead of being from the traditional male heroic perspective, this is from a woman's perspective and not just 
a regular woman, but this woman who was born a nymph and who becomes the first witch in Western literature. And apart from the Odyssey, where else does she appear then? What are other sources that you're able to draw on? So the, I used kind of three other major myths that are out there. Um, one is Ovid. So she appears in Ovid's Metamorphoses. She's a goddess of transformation. So it makes sense that she would do a tour in um, Ovid's great poem, The Transformations. And in it, she is this very, um, she's a very different figure than she is in, in Homer. She's very lovelorn and almost pathetic. Um, he describes her as having a, an ingenium, an, an inborn quality that is more fitted for love than, than most others. And that was really interesting to me. Um, I liked some of that idea of her being a little bit of an outlier, um, which is something that Homer talks about too. Homer describes her as the dread goddess who speaks like a mortal. So that was very interesting is that in, in both cases, both Ovid and Homer see her as an outlier. Um, so that was kind of a, an important piece. And in Ovid, she is in this love triangle with Glaucus, who's a god who used to be immortal, and a nymph. And it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it, it's also a 3,000-year-old story. So I don't know if that counts as a spoiler, but I'm just going to say it. <laughs> the nymph's name is Scylla. And she gets really angry when Glaucus doesn't love her. And she does something rather nasty to the nymph Scylla. And in sort of Ovid's version, it's very much presented as kind of, you know, the woman scorned, the irrational woman in love. You know, if you say no to women, they'll lose their heads and, you know, turn you into monsters. But I sort of wanted to take that basic love triangle and have her do the nasty thing, but give her a little bit more reason for it. And more importantly, make her live with the consequences of what she's done. Um, so what she does which happens fairly early on in the novel, is something that she has to then live with for you know the rest of her goddess eternity. Another one of the stories that I used comes from the Argonautica, which is Apollonius's, Apollonius of Rhodes' retelling of the Jason myths, Jason and the Argonauts. That's where it gets its name, the Argonautica. And Jason and the Argonauts, um, of course, on their voyage home, travel with Medea, another great witch from ancient literature. And Medea and Jason do some rather horrendous things, and they land on the island of Aiaia looking for absolution and purification from Circe. And I knew that that myth had to go in for a couple reasons. First of all, you know, here are the two great witches talking to each other. Um, I think that's a fascinating moment in Medea's evolution. She's kind of started down a dark road, but there's this feeling that maybe she could kind of pull up out of the, <laughs> out of the nosedive. And even more importantly, Medea and Circe are actually family. They're aunt and niece. Circe is Medea's aunt. And so I, I wanted to explore kind of the family dynamics, the older, more experienced woman and the younger woman and, and sort of different ways that they have dealt with the constrictions and misogyny in their lives. And then the last major myth I used was, is actually we don't have the text at all. Um, it was an ancient epic. There were lots and lots of ancient epics. Only the Iliad and the Odyssey have survived. All the others only survive in summary or references to them or, you know, little bits of them. And in this one, this is called the Telegony. And again, this is kind of a spoiler, so I apologize. But in the Telegony, Circe is pregnant with a child of Odysseus when Odysseus sails away. And she bears this child, a son, who she names Telegonus, just to be extra confusing with the Telemachus, Odysseus, Penelope, and Telegonus. Yes, I must say that was confusing. <laughs> I know, that was one of those things where my editor was like, can you possibly change that? And I was like, I really can't. I'm sorry. I know, it stinks. <laughs> Telemachus, Telegonus. So 
that's an interesting thing actually to explore, you know, what their names mean. The tele means far from, that's where I get the word telephone, right? Speaking from, from far away um, is what we do when we talk on the telephone. And telegonus um, implies someone who's born far away because he is born at a great distance from his father um, when his father is back home in Ithaca. So telegonus goes off, he's raised on the magical island by his goddess mother, by his witch goddess mother. And when he comes of age, he wants to go looking for his father. So he does. And he does find his father. And a bunch of stuff happens that I'm going to leave very vague because it's the whole last quarter of the novel. (laughs) Um, But what eventually happens is that he brings Penelope and Telemachus back to Aiaia. And that's in the myth. Um, And so I knew that I had Penelope waiting for me in that last stretch, which was really exciting because Penelope, who is Odysseus's wife, is another one of these female characters who is very veiled in the original. In fact, literally in Homer, her first appearance, she is veiled. And I wanted to bring out a little bit more of sort of what some of the mysteries might be and and who she is behind that veil. And I wanted to have these two very clever, fascinating, complex women talk to each other. So those were those were kind of my my major touchstones and and everything I made up. And as you said, this is a story that's 3,000 years old, and there's obviously been, you know, obviously many more more recently, but adaptations of this story. And so how does Circe herself tend to be portrayed? Um, I think she's often either very villainous. She, in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, they would, you know, publish these kind of morality handbooks where they would, you know, warn you about the proper way to live. And there was always a warning about how men shouldn't let their wives have too much power. They had to keep their control over their wives. And the illustration for those was always Cersei and the pigs. (laughs) So, you know, she was the example of what happens when women are allowed too much power and, you know, they get out of control. And I think even, even in the ancient world, Cersei was very much this, you know, incarnation of male anxiety about female power, even though there's this whole other part that happens in Homer where she's very helpful and very wise and very benevolent that I think gets lost. So usually I think she's portrayed as, as, you know, the sexy witch, the temptress, the alluring, you know, villainous, or I think she is portrayed a little bit more in the in the Ovidian mode, where she is very lovelorn. She falls in love with Odysseus. She, you know, yearns for him. She loses her heart to him. But I, I think one thing that has happened over the years, which is understandable, is that the characters of Circe and Calypso have actually been collapsed. So Calypso is the other nymph in the Odyssey whose name begins with C, who sleeps with Odysseus and has a magical island. <laughs> and she and Circe have quite a lot in common. And Calypso is the one who keeps Odysseus trapped on her island for seven years and, and won't let him go while Odysseus is miserable and yearning to go home. And she's completely in love with him and, you know, she she's obsessed with him and doesn't want to let him go. And so I think what's happened over the years is oftentimes Calypso and Circe have kind of been put together. Um, and so Circe becomes that lovelorn, you know, I'm obsessed with Odysseus. I don't want him to go. Whereas she's much more independent in the Homer. And I wanted to kind of go back to that Homeric version. She seems to, you know, be attracted to Odysseus. She seems to have some insight into his character, to offer him friendship, to be very benevolent towards him. But when he says it's time to go, she says, sure, here you go. And she sends him on his way with with all the possible help. So that's been interesting, too. I really wanted to reclaim that aspect of the story. And so why retell it? What can this story tell us about today? Um, Well, you know, I think that I have always believed very strongly that the ancient stories 
tell us a lot about ourselves today because I think although technology and culture has changed, that human beings really haven't. The way we go to war has changed, but not the fact that we go to war. You know, we still grieve and love and hope and hate and all these things still go on. And for me, I feel that so many of the things that Circe struggles with as a woman and and in fact, in general, I think she's not the only character who struggles with the constrictions of her society. There are actually a number of other women who also struggle and a number of men who also struggle with those constrictions. But I, I wanted to kind of bring out the fact that, yes, we've come a long way, but some of these things are still very much with us. And one of the eerie parts about writing this book is that I began it in 2010. Um, so I started working on it a long time before what's been happening with the Me Too movement and, and much more awareness arising in, in the public sector about what's happening to women, um, the Harvey Weinstein news, all that, all that stuff. And all that started breaking as I was basically in final, final edits. And it was so strange to have written about these scenes and then to see them playing out on the news, you know, women being silenced, women being abused, women being kept from the halls of power. You know, the ancients used to have a saying, there's nothing new under the sun. And I think that these stories reflect that. They go back to really primal human experiences. So we have made some progress, thankfully, since Cersei's time, but I think that her story also represents that we still have a ways to go. And so let's talk about how you go about updating it. I mean, as you've said, it's obviously told from Cersei's perspective, and indeed it's a first-person narration, um, so we get it directly from Cersei's perspective rather than a, you know, a sort of a much more overhead view of a god's view of, of of characters moving around but in terms of like the language how do you sort of stay faithful to the original sources but at the same time make it readable for a, for a modern audience well i think that was something i thought a lot about and it took me about five years to find cersei's voice um i have a background in theater and so for me being able to hear the way a character talks and and to be able to kind of put on the characters if I'm an actor getting into character uh, is very important to me. And so for about five years, I wrestled with finding that that voice and I wanted it to be organic. You know, I didn't want to be sitting there sweating over every word choice and every line. I wanted it to kind of come out naturally as if she really were telling the, the story. And what I was looking for, although I couldn't totally articulate this at the time, was I wanted her to speak in a very direct way um, because I think she's a very direct person. But I wanted there to be this slight kind of oddness or formality or alienness to her speech that I think would come with being a goddess who has lived thousands of years, who has been through, you know, different evolutions of the language. <laughs> you know, she would probably speak in this formal kind of high epic style mixed with this very direct honest way, almost blunt way of speaking. And so kind of putting those two together and you know, getting the right mixture there took me a long time. I mean, I, I always want, you know, first and foremost, I wanted this to be an adventure story. You know, this is the story of a woman who breaks away from her horrendous family at considerable cost and has to kind of carve her own path in the world. And so just like the Iliad and the Odyssey originally, you know, now we study them and I think we tend to see them as kind of dry texts, but these were high entertainment and they still are, I think, in, in good translation and in the original. 
Um, and so I wanted this to be, you know, an adventure, an exciting story with gods and monsters and love and, you know, pain and all the things that are in the original myths. So along with, with that voice, I wanted it to be a, a compelling voice that could tell a good story. And you said that Cersei has come to represent the idea of a woman who gains too much power and has to be sort of put back in her place. And I wanted to talk about where power resided in those days. And at the risk of it of confusing talking about, you know, Greek society or the society in these heroic narratives that are obviously right. set thousands <laughs> of years before, you know, Homer was actually, you know, I was gonna say writing it, but Homer was telling the story. Um so let's talk about what was the role of a nymph? Mm. So in the Greek myth, Circe is, is born a nymph, and in the Greek myth, the nymphs are the absolute lowest of the low. That within the divine hierarchy, you know, you have the Olympian gods and the old, old titans, Zeus, Helios, Poseidon, Athena, Hera, um, and they have kind of the most amount of power. And then sort of you go down and down and down through all the different levels of gods. You know, there are river gods and there are the winds and the fates and sort of all these different levels, um, the muses. And at the very, very bottom are the nymphs. Um, and they seem to have very little agency or ability to affect their own destiny. And in fact, most often in the stories, they're prey for greater gods or, or for men. Um, they're used, they're kind of moved around like pawns and they're given to men, you know, as prizes. And I think some of my interest in, in that and in Circe as a nymph, you know, she's born a god, but she's born a god with no power, basically, comes right out of the Song of Achilles because Achilles' mother, both in mythology and in my novel, is a sea nymph. And she's the sea nymph Thetis. And one of the things that I found very poignant about her story is that she spends so much effort and so much time trying to save her son's life. And she can't do it. She can't. Because, you know, as a nymph, she basically can only work through kind of convincing greater gods to, to do stuff for her. So when it came to Circe, I wanted to look at, you know, what is it like from the perspective of someone who's living with that? What is it like to go through life as prey? Um, how do you how do you make a life for yourself? Is it even possible? And so I think what Cersei finds is that she finds witchcraft, which is kind of her her way around that. But I, I think it, it's a very hard life, and I wanted to bring that out, bring out that powerlessness. You know, we we talk about gods as if that's an exciting thing to be, but in in the world of mythology, it was not great to be a nymph. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Madeline Miller. We're talking about her novel Circe. And Madeline, I wanted to bring up the idea of, of the witch and you know, it's an idea that historically has obviously been used to keep women in their place and right up to the present day and we saw that, you know, Hillary Clinton, for instance, was repeatedly attacked and called a witch. And indeed you wrote a, a really great essay that appeared in, in the Guardian Review a while back. A, about this idea let's talk about this idea of the witch and i guess how it's how it sort of played out in in literature down the ages yeah well there are so many different strains of witchcraft so you know circe i said is is the first in western literature and but you can already see kind of some of those classic witchy attributes um she has a staff which is kind of like a, a magical wand scholars debate whether or not she seems to be using it as a magic wand or if it's just kind of a you know a prop that she uses to help drive the pigs into the sty um, but she has you know something like a wand she has this close association with animals very like a witch and her familiars and she also has most importantly knowledge of herbs potions poisons and that her spells come from come from the earth they come from you know that ability to manipulate potions and and spells and herbs and plants so all that kind of you will see in in later witches there are lots of different types i, I would say that you know as i said cersei's kind of the sexy witch type but there's also the classic macbeth type the weird sisters they're repulsive they use disgusting ingredients in their potions um yes there are some you know plants but mostly it's things like horrible bits of reptiles and even body parts and so so they're kind of horrifying for another reason but one thing that I, I think unites a lot of these different types of witches is that they are all women who stand a little bit outside society. And in fact, they have more power than society says that they should have. And so therefore, they have this very conflicted relationship with society because in, in some sense, society holds them in awe. But in another sense, society wants to put them back in their place and normalize them, take them out of this outsider special role that they have and kind of, you know, pull them back back to earth. So I think you see that tension a lot. And what's interesting to me is that we seem to be moving actually in a positive direction with witches, um, which is nice. <laughs> uh, a lot of feminists have written about how in kind of 
a lot of those accusations of witchcraft that happened in kind of the Middle Ages and, you know, the time of Salem, they were leveled at women who were the herbalists, they were the village herbalist, maybe they weren't married, you know, but they became scapegoats and, and pariahs. And really that those accusations were about misogyny. They were not actually about demon craft, <laughs> you know, or, or Satan. And I, I think we've come to really realize that but as you say, it remains such a potent word for us. That's what's so odd is even as we can look at Salem and realize how ridiculous something like that was, that all these people were killed for supposed consorting with Satan, over 20% of Americans in a, in a study believe in witches and, you know, not the good kind of witches. Yeah, I was going to say, when people call Hillary Clinton a witch, they're not comparing her to Hermione Granger, are they? That's right. No, they're not. <laughs> or Glinda the Good Witch. You know, that it still is It still is a negative word, and it still is a negative word for a woman with more power than we want. You know, it's, it's, it's a word we use to attack a woman with power. If we can't call her whore, we call her a witch. Obviously, the, the book is from Cersei's perspective. So through her eyes, we get to see the men in her life, you know, from her father, Helios, and through her encounter with Prometheus and Daedalus, and particularly, as you've already mentioned, Odysseus. And Odysseus in particular doesn't really come across that well in this book. <laughs> um, well, Odysseus was a... I was really excited to write about Odysseus again. He was a sort of secondary character in Song of Achilles. Um, and he's just, he's so much fun to write about because he's so smart and he has so many plots bubbling away. You know, he's the, he's the master manipulator. If Achilles is always honest to a fault, you know, Odysseus would rather lie than tell you the truth. And he's always kind of puppet mastering stuff behind the scenes. And so part of what I wanted to do in this is, is now, you know, in Song of Achilles, we saw him when he was younger. And now in Circe, she meets him when he is really at a very low point. The war's been over for two years. He still can't get back home. He's lost all his men and all his ships, except for one. And, you know, there's a god with a vendetta against him now. And so he's really at this low point, but he can sort of rally at moments. So I have I have some sympathy for Odysseus because I, I do think that, you know, the, the Odyssey for all the gods and monsters is really the story of this exhausted veteran who just wants to get back to his family. And so I wanted to bring up that aspect of, of his exhaustion um, and his sort of harrowing story and the amount of brutality and horror that he has seen and, and participated in. And so part of what I, I wanted to, to bring out was, you know, the idea of people PTSD. The ancients didn't have that word, but they absolutely had the concept. And, you know, you can see it in a number of ancient stories that they tell about soldiers, Ajax, the Ajax, the tragedy, the Ajax, um, or Ajax, the tragedy Philoctetes, and the Odyssey itself, I think. I think the end is just this endless bloodbath that seems like it's going to go on forever until Athena comes down and says, okay, that's the end. You know, but what happens if Athena doesn't come down? Does Odysseus just keep killing people? <laughs> you know, everyone who speaks against him, does he just keep going? And so I wanted to bring that out. But I also wanted, again, to kind of go back to some of the ancient ideas about Odysseus. I think we have come to really love Odysseus in the modern era. Um, he's smart. He is, you know, subversive. He has this great wife and he gets to have, you know, these exciting adventures. And so I think we've come to really admire him. But the ancients had a much more mixed feeling about Odysseus. They often emphasized his manipulativeness, the fact that he was such a liar. You know, in the Iliad, he kills a whole bunch of enemy soldiers who have just arrived while they're sleeping. 
you know, with no, absolutely no second thoughts. You know, it's just more pragmatic. He's the ultimate pragmatist. They're asleep. Wow, it's really easy to kill him now. Let's do it. You know, Achilles would never do that because Achilles is driven by this idea of, of honor tied to glory. But Odysseus wants glory, but the, the honor, <laughs> you know, he, he's willing to work around that. And so I wanted to kind of go back to this more ambiguous Odysseus, this Odysseus who is kind of out for himself. You know, that's what, in a sense, a, a pragmatist taken to its extreme is, is someone who only acts in their own benefit and in their own interest. And after doing that for 20 years and seeing the horrors he's seen, I feel like that might start to twist you. Cersei is exiled to Aya, her island, but through that exile she gains her independence. But of course with that comes loneliness and vulnerability. And indeed you you show the famous incident of Odysseus and the pigs through her eyes basically as a, you know, as a defense mechanism to forestall an inevitable sexual assault. Yes, I mean I I think that that was Part of what I think you get when you kind of flip that, you know, that script a little bit and, you know, here Odysseus is coming, he sees her as this frightening witch goddess, but she's all alone on this island. Yes, she has, you know, witchcraft, but mostly what she has are her sort of charms and her wiles. You know, witchcraft isn't like Zeus's power. It's not a thunderbolt. You have to actually get them to drink the, (laughs) you know, drink the potions, take the potions before it'll work. So she has this this power, but she has a, a limited type of power. And now, you know, these sailors, this group of sailors lands on your island. And let's be honest, Odysseus's men are also not moral exemplars. Um, There's a lot of looting in the Odyssey. And of course, you know, when they left Troy, they would have completely looted that city, taken the women as slaves, killed all the men. You know, these are hard bitten, by the time they arrive on Circe's island, pirates, pretty much. And you know, here they are flooding onto her island, arriving, you know, in a huge group at her door. Um, I think every woman has felt that sort of where suddenly you're you're in a you realize, oh, I'm the only woman in this room. And, you know, some of these men I don't feel so comfortable with. I mean, I think that is a I won't say universal, but a, a very common experience for women, you know, to suddenly sort of realize, wow, am I unsafe in this situation? Um, and so I wanted Cersei to, to struggle with that a little bit, that even with her power, you know, she's outnumbered and doesn't really have a lot of defense. And as you've already mentioned, through Odysseus, she gains a son, Telegonus. And the portrayal in the in the novel of her raising Telegonus is, is basically the portrayal of a, of a single mother struggling to, to raise an unruly child. Yes. And, you know, part of, you know, telling her story as an epic is I wanted to bring in some experiences that haven't traditionally been considered important enough for epic, i.e. women's experiences. Epic is so much about death. You know, the Iliad is all about death and war and grief and loss. But one of the most epic things that I can personally think of is actually birth. And I think anyone who has given birth or witnessed a birth can attest to that. (laughs) You know, it is a truly, it's kind of harrowing, it's exhilarating, um, it's extremely high stakes. Especially if you're giving birth to a minotaur. Yes, especially (laughs) if there's a minotaur involved. Absolutely. And so... I wanted to to bring in birth scenes and, and to bring in parenting, which have things that have been kind of traditionally kept out of epic because they were more traditionally female. And but they are part of Cersei's experience and so therefore I you know, I wanted to give them their full weight and I think being a single mother is hard whether you're a human or a goddess. 
And just one more point from me, and then I'll, I'll get you to read some if you would. You've already mentioned the development of a, you know, the, what happens with with Scylla, and then they developing, I guess, guilt over what had happened over the years. And and Cersei also feels the pain of immortality. She sees the mortals that she loves grow old and die. But with that, she gains, with both of those things, she gains understanding, she grows as a woman, gains empathy. And of course, this is not something that divine beings are really supposed to do, is it? No, they they don't. I, I, I think that is one of the really extraordinary things about the myths is just how cruel and self-involved the gods are that they are totally, I mean, today, if they were real people, we would call them narcissistic sociopaths, <laughs> basically. They only care about themselves. Um, occasionally, they will help out a favorite, but only as kind of an extension of their own glory um, or you know, to gratify something in themselves. And as I was creating the portrait of the gods, I was going back to the ancient myths and looking at all these examples of gods being cruel, being Artemis turning a hunter who happens to see her naked into a deer and having him torn apart by his own dogs. Doesn't matter that he didn't mean to, all that stuff. But I was also looking at some modern psychology things, which there were some recent psychological studies where they found that the more power and wealth, wealth in particular that you have, unless you fight against it, the less empathy you feel. And so originally when they started this study, they thought that, you know, the richest people would be the most generous people because, you know, they had the most to spare. But what they actually found is that the people who had the least amount were the most generous and felt the most empathy because they literally had experienced suffering and deprivation themselves. And so they could understand acutely how it would affect someone else. And that unless, you know, you were these privileged people were really fighting against it empathy kind of vanishes. And so I think the gods are absolutely examples of that. <laughs> you know, they have lived with so much privilege and power and wealth and untouchability, literally immortality, that they can't even imagine, you know, what a, a normal person's life is like. And Cersei, as a nymph, I think, you know, with very little power, kind of stands on the border and she's able to to look over and, and see that in some ways Im immortality makes monsters of her family. And she, she doesn't want to be part of that. Okay, that's it from me. Can I get you to just read as a, a quick excerpt before we finish? Sure. I think, I mean, we've, we've talked about witches and, and pigs, so I think I have to pick a pig section. This comes from towards the middle of the novel, after Cersei has already started turning men to pigs, and the he in the section is Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall, when my lions were gone and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, 
those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs, they do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies. But they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. So I've been talking to Madeline Miller, who have been talking about her novel Circe, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Madeline, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.